0: Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology
1: on culture.
0: I'm Ted Copper, I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is the future of brain-computer interfaces? So like we always do, we have to start with a definition. What is a brain-computer interface?
1: So one way you might define a brain-computer interface is just anything that allows a brain to interact with a computer but we're not going to be that broad today because we're going to leave out a few things.
0: We're limiting our discussion of brain-computer interfaces to just those types of technology where the brain outputs some signal of some kind and that goes into
1: a machine. There's three steps to this process, right? So it starts with a sensor. The sensor's got to read data about a person's brain in real time. Usually that's electrical data uh, because the brain uses electrical signals to send messages. And then that signal gets sent to a computer that does signal processing. And then that data is used to drive some kind of output, which could be a lot of different things.
0: So what kind of sensors exist these days? Like what is what's out there for these kind of uh, applications to use?
1: So if you need to get data out of the brain, uh, the first thing you could do is you could use a non-invasive sensor. Uh, Most commonly, this would be an electroencephalogram, more commonly known as an EEG. These are going to record electrical activity that's happening along a person's scalp via electrodes that are actually placed on the skin.
0: So this is the uh, clockwork orange thing, right? This is like the...
1: (laughs) I mean, this is a thing that you've seen. You've seen this before, is what I'm saying. So many places. I mean, to be honest, this technology is not new. I mean, it's been going on for decades now. So it's been shown in more than a few movies, and there's been more than a few articles over the years about things they can do with this stuff. So yes, an EEG you know, usually looks like sort of a skull cap or a helmet of some kind that you wear on your head, although today they have some sleeker and smaller and nicer looking ones than they used to. Uh, but you wear this on your scalp. Sometimes it uh, involves some kind of gel. Those are the, the wet versions. Sometimes there's, they're dry. But these are non-invasive, these are getting electrical activity out of the brain, but they're having to do it through the skull. So there's some disadvantages to that method. As you'd imagine, they don't get as high a resolution as you would if you were inside the skull. They're pretty noisy. And they can only capture, because of how far away they are from the brain and because they're going through the skull and so on, You know what you would call large-scale brain information. Situations when, say, like 50,000 neurons are firing at the same time. So this might mean some pretty significant either external event that the brain's reacting to or, or internal event that triggers a, a cascade of a bunch of neurons firing or it could be what's called a neural oscillation. These are constant oscillations that are happening inside the brain. Okay, so, so this I- is
0: the answer to something we've talked about before, which is like, this is you, this is that like alpha waves, gamma waves thing, right? <laughs> or whatever. I, I've heard of this before, but I don't really know what it is. What is it?
1: So let, let's back up a second and just discuss that even though we're talking about brain's controlling interfaces, nobody really understands what's going on inside the brain, right? It's, it's still basically a black box situation, but we can measure these electrical signals and we can try to, to do something from that. And people have measured these, you know, various waves, these oscillations that happen across the whole brain uh, or across sections of the brain. And these are classified with different names, alpha waves, beta waves, delta waves, and so on. And you can say certain things about them across people. So you can say that an alpha wave is a certain wave that you can measure with, say, an EEG device like we're talking about that tends to coincide with, say, a state of wakeful relaxation. Alpha waves tend to increase when your eyes are closed and when you're relaxed, but you're also awake, what you might call sort of a almost a meditative state, as opposed to, say, beta waves, which are those are associated more with like waking consciousness or delta waves, which are associated with deep sleep. Now, again, what do these actually represent in terms of what's going on inside the brain? I'm not sure that's even fully understood, but we can measure them and we can see what they correlate with, basically. Okay, so
0: they're just some sort of like large pattern that the brain is giving off and that we can
1: measure. They're a large pattern, yeah. Okay, all right. I, that's so my I, very professional. Okay,
0: <laughs> no, I mean, that's more about it than I knew. Okay. I've heard these terms before, but I, they just always sort of sounded snake-oily to me, and I never knew what they meant. I hadn't done the research.
1: Well, we talked about this um, a little bit with Jesse Waller from right. Smart Drugs Smarts. Right. When we talked about biofeedback, which we'll get into today.
0: Right, that's when you hear about various devices, like trying to help you basically generate alpha waves, usually. That's like sort of what they do, right? Uh, like kind of train you to meditate, essentially?
1: Well, okay, so when it comes to this non-invasive way of sensing the brain with these EEGs, I mean, this is something that anybody can do because it doesn't require surgery, and there are now these consumer-ready products that will do that. So one of them is something called Amuse, uh, and Amuse is designed to do exactly what you're talking about. It's designed to uh, help get you into... A state of meditation, which I assume is associated with alpha waves, although I'm not hundred percent sure that that's how that works.
0: I feel that I've heard that you know, I'm obviously not an expert in this, but I think I've heard that.
1: Yeah, there's a few different kinds of waves, and you know they don't map perfectly to human traits. That's the other thing. It's not like you know there's a wave that represents excitement, you know So <laughs> a lot of these things will claim that they can measure excitement, and yes, they kind of can they can measure some of these patterns that are correlated with various things and they can look at a bunch of different variables and they can sort of start to infer something. But, uh, you know, you can obviously tell broad things like is someone awake or asleep and perhaps how much attention they're paying to things and perhaps how relaxed they are, say. Kind of like general traits are things that you can sense pretty easily with an EEG. And, you know, there are other things that you can also get with an EEG. Again, it's not as good as an actual brain implant that goes inside the skull. But uh, like another consumer-ready product is the Emotive Epoch.
0: Yeah, they have a great website. They have these very sexy models wearing this headband that looks like a mechanical spider, kind of, that's uh, <laughs> around their heads.
1: Right. I mean, I think they they tried to make this thing look a little more attractive than they usually look in the labs. So yeah,
0: it's like they're trying to make it look like a A pair of sunglasses or a high-tech headset or something like
1: that. Sure. And those are designed more as like a platform for experimentation. I mean, it comes with some software that will help you use it for a lot of standard things. So now might be a good time to kind of explain how this actually works. Okay. Yeah. How does it work? Like One thing that you could do is you could train this device to, say, control your cursor with your mind. It's not going to be able to just know that you want to move your cursor up the second you put this thing on. You have to train it because everybody's brain is different. And the way that works is it's going to instruct you, say, to think about the concept of up. And it might help if you have some kind of consistent visualization that you could assign to that. Perhaps it's actually visualization of using a trackpad or a mouse to move it up like you normally would. And then it's going to measure what your brain looks like while you're having that thought. And then the signal processing, after watching you have that thought multiple times, is going to attempt to figure out some salient details, some patterns that it can use to distinguish that from you, say, just resting and thinking about nothing, or to distinguish it from, say, you thinking about down, which is something else it would want to measure. And so once it's got your four basic directions, then it knows what to look for. So in the future, when you think about up the computer can respond by moving the cursor appropriately. This is the basic concept here.
0: Right, and you can see how this quickly gets pretty complex. But it's also the kind of thing that we seem to be having progress with lately, right? Like there's all these deep learning applications that seem to work in the same way. You give them a lot of input data, and then they suss out a pattern where one was not necessarily detected before.
1: Right, and that's the thing, is that if you're using a non-invasive sensor right now, you're going to have to give it a lot... Of input data to get the kinds of results that they're getting in labs,
0: and is that just basically because of the low quality of the data that's coming in? It's just noisy, unreliable data,
1: right? Ex- exactly, and you're and you're limited again to large scale brain information, right? You're not able to say measure, you know, precise areas of the brain or specific neurons or specific regions, and you know, having something that's got to read your electrical signals through your skull is maybe never going to do a perfect job. I don't know. All right. You've convinced
0: me. Let's drill a hole in your skull and we'll put a chip in there. We'll see. What can can we get then? What can we get with an invasive sensor?
1: Well, so, and I don't want to, again, I don't want to sell like these EEG products short either, because I think there's a lot you can do with this sort of like broad information. And I don't know, maybe the signal processing will get to the point that you really can sort out a lot from very little data. But yeah, if you want the, the cutting edge with this stuff, then you would need an invasive sensor. Now, there's varying degrees of invasiveness. So there's something called electrocorticography, which actually puts electrodes inside the skull. So it gets past the skull barrier, but it's still on the surface of the brain. I like that. That avoids the problem of scar tissue forming. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah. which if you actually, you know, implant electrodes into the brain can degrade their effectiveness over time. Right, right. But uh, obviously, you know, either way you're in for surgery. But what you get in exchange is obviously you get a lot higher resolution and... You know, they can place these electrodes in very precise locations to get very, very precise types of information that they need. So let's talk about some of the common experiments. And again, mostly these are designed, if not for test animals, then they're designed for people that would only volunteer for this because they have some kind of major medical condition or disability. I mean, most of these people are paralyzed uh, in some form or another. And so the main goal here is to give them the ability to eventually hopefully walk again, to move their arms, to just communicate uh, via email if they need to, and so on. You know, a common place you might say put electrodes is in the motor cortex, right? Because you want to give people uh, movement. Sure. So you can, again, target a specific area. Now, again, there's... A lot of downsides, aside from the surgery, there's actual cabling that has to come out of these people's heads. You know, it's like they have a jack in their head, essentially.
0: I saw a movie about that, too. That didn't end well.
1: Yeah, you've seen this in a movie, and (laughs) it's a lot less cool than it is in a movie because, not surprisingly, you can get infections very easily when you have a wire going through the skin, and you also can't walk very far. Uh, You're basically stuck in the lab. So, I mean, the, the goal here is to go wireless. Now, just this year, 2015, this company... Well, I don't know if you can call them a company. They're a consortium. They're based mo- mainly out of Brown University called BrainGate announced that it was going to be commercializing a, a wireless device. But this is pretty new. I mean, up until recently, you know, if you wanted to do this, you had to be wired. But even that wireless device still would be coming out of the skull And there would still be a wire somewhere going through the skin. So again, the ultimate holy grail here is to have a fully implanted wireless device that, you know, has the skin and the skull completely sealed and allows a person complete freedom to use their device outside of a lab. Now, now, once you have this embedded, these are the kinds of people that are able to, say, control robotic arms. You can watch videos online of people using a robotic arm to drink coffee or the more recent one from this year is somebody uh, used a robotic arm to drink a beer by themselves for the first time in over 10 years. I mean, this is extremely promising technology for people that have these disabilities, but it's not clear that you or I would want to go into this surgery anytime soon. So these are basically your options for for getting the the signal out of the brain. You've got your invasive and your non-invasive, but there's trade-offs with both of those. So then the real challenge comes in, and most of the work in this field is happening in the area of signal processing. And again, we mentioned part of the reason already why this would be so challenging, because again, we don't really know what underlying principles in the brain are controlling the kinds of parameters that we're measuring. And again, it varies from person to person. But I didn't mention that it also varies within a person a great deal.
0: Right, right. Brains are very plastic; they're always sort of rewiring themselves, and you can imagine they're probably changing structurally all, all the time.
1: So I, I heard one of the scientists from BrainGate talking about how they have to literally recalibrate uh, every day these devices, uh, and that's—I mean, these are the the top of the line devices that are in the lab. And then again. Sensor placement is going to affect it. I mean, this is one of the things that I think would be a big issue for say the home device that you're just putting on your head. I mean, if you're not going to put it on your head exactly the same way every time and that's going to result in variation and there's just, you know, there's a very high signal to noise ratio. Again, your brain was not designed to send clear messages in this way. And also signals can cancel out. Uh, Like a funny example of that is that the, uh, the, the amygdala apparently is actually like somewhat spherical, which results in, in most of the signals in that region, you know, almost perfectly canceling each other out. It's
0: just like in phase,
1: They're standing waves. I mean, I assume that's what that would mean. We are dealing with
0: electrical signals here, so the same kinds of problems that you can have with uh, electrical circuits probably show up.
1: Again, you're limited to just what appears as electrical data, and that has nothing to do with necessarily what we're actually interested in. There's a lot of challenges, obviously. Another one is that, you know, you're doing this all in real time. I mean, you need really fast response. Right. And so the result is that, you know, in some of these labs, they're not necessarily using a hundred percent of the data that they could use. Right. So again, I heard one of the scientists from BrainGate describing that, say to control an arm, they're, you know, maybe mapping three-dimensional space, you know, like all the different directions. Mm-hmm. But they're not necessarily measuring, you know, angles of different joints. Right. But we know that information's gotta be in there, right? And it's got to be parsable at some level, but you got to simplify a little bit just because of how much processing you have to do on the fly. And as good as processors are, when you have to do this in real time, I mean, it starts to become burdensome. Okay. So, so you've got your signal and then you've processed it. And then the next thing is where are you going to send it? And this is where this kind of gets the most interesting because this is just subject to your creativity, right? I mean, this is just data on a computer at this point. So you can use it to Drive just about anything you can imagine, and again, we already touched on the most common uses. The things that are driving this technology forward are things for the the paralyzed and otherwise disabled,
0: right? Accessibility technologies of various right. kinds, like so you can send it into a computer and have the person have you know full control of the computer for communication and whatever else,
1: right? So a lot of use has gone into say like spelling. Devices just so people can literally type out what they want. Got it. So write an email and so on. We already mentioned arms, but also legs and uh, exoskeletons. Right, right. The goal ultimately with these exoskeletons would be targeted at these, you know, tetraplegic people that literally can't move any of their limbs. Right. You know, that they could essentially have a new body that replaced their old body and that they could just move purely with thought. I mean, that would be, that would be the goal.
0: That's the way I like to move my body is with thought.
1: Is with thought. Yeah. Right.
0: That's my preferred method.
1: You and I have the privilege of doing that, and some of these people may remember a time when they could do that before right. they, they got shot in the spine or something. The, the most like high-profile example of this was the, the 2014 World Cup. Right, right, right. I believe Nicola, when he was on the show, mentioned this. He was talking about this guy Miguel Nicolales, uh, he's really prominent in this field, and he was the head of a project that equipped somebody with an exoskeleton for the purpose of kicking off the the first ball that started the 2014 World Cup, which I thought was going to be a lot more exciting video <laughs> than it actually turned out to be, but it's still very cool uh, in the abstract to think about that being possible. Uh, another thing, actually, that you don't think about that's more the... The frontier for this stuff is this is a fancy term disorders of consciousness, but it turns out that just means you know people that are in in comas or, or oh, vegetative yeah. states.
0: Disorders, sans consciousness.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or they're not conscious all the time. Sure. right? And you're in a coma. You can't you know express your wishes. Uh, you know even about very serious things like whether you even want to continue your life. Say this type of interface might be a way to actually get the consent or desires oh yeah to like burrow
0: into the mind and see what grandma wants to do
1: right i mean some of these people are in fact partially conscious or conscious at certain times of day right but nobody can tell so this is a way to, to solve that that problem and allow people to actually you know control their own destiny when they're stuck in that state hopefully
0: if if they can that's really interesting oh, okay yeah
1: uh moving on. There, there's no reason that we have to only map things to arms, legs, and normal appendages, right? I mean, one one thing that I think is interesting is is the possibility of of weirder appendages, things that humans wouldn't normally have, and whether or not people could assimilate those and feel like those were actually part of their body after it continued usage, right? Like could you you know, train someone to get used to a tail or a third arm. Or wings. Or wings, exactly.
0: I want wings. I don't want a tail or a third arm. Well, maybe uh, a third arm. Third arm sounds kind of useful. Depends where it goes, I guess.
1: And the the, the name they use for that is <laughs> is embodiment, right? You, like when you actually, I mean, even with, with just controlling a robot arm, if you actually start to feel like it's part of you, right, that would be embodiment, right? right? So So can you embody something that's not normal. And and the answer is you probably can. I mean, the brain is so flexible. So there's this term homuncular flexibility, which is coined by uh, Jaron Lanier. Oh, really? He's such a term coiner. Jaren. He's a term coiner. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, he's known for being a virtual reality pioneer back before we really had virtual reality. <laughs> Mostly
0: by, again, coining the term, right? I think that's his primary. <laughs> I think that's
1: correct. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> a
0: primary a, contribution which is not nothing it's a good
1: term well i mean so he ran all these experiments in the 80s though okay um and that's where this term came from right so they did experiments with trying to see if people in virtual reality could embody strange body types like there was one with a like a lobster body that had you know multiple arms yeah they didn't have this technology that we're talking about of, say, you know, mapping it to brain states, but instead, you know, they mapped it to other things like ankle movements or like the turn of your wrist. And then they found that people eventually could get used to and feel like they were embodying these very strange appendages in, at least in virtual reality, or, or so, so the claim is.
0: Sure. I mean, then that does seem intuitively to make sense.
1: This is what I would expect would happen. I yeah. mean, I think, yeah. It's fun to think about what what things people might be able to control in the future. And I mean, yeah, I mean, we're talking about appendages like wings, right? But, you know, this isn't limited by space, right? They might be controlling a vehicle across the world, you know, via the internet.
0: Well, so, right, like uh, telepresence robots, uh, something like that. You could be rolling around a space somewhere else and using your brain to control the device.
1: Sure, exactly. So yeah, so I mean the, the, the most famous example of actually just using the internet to control stuff remotely would be, there was a study where a, a monkey controls a robot arm across the globe. Actually a monkey, contro- I believe it was a robot on a conveyor belt and the monkey was in America and the uh, the robot was in Japan.
0: So the monkey was in America and the robot was in Japan?
1: Right. Yeah, that
0: seems right. So obviously we know that, you know, brain computer interfaces are awesome because they let monkeys control robot arms and you don't need anything more to be convinced that they are awesome. But I don't know, it seems like once you can control a computer with your brain, that just opens up so many doors because the computer in turn can control so very many other things.
1: Right. I mean, so let's say you could control things inside your house. You know, if maybe it's just a light switch, right? And I think, you know, this makes a lot more sense for, you know, a disabled person that can't reach their light switch. But, you know, you could imagine.
0: I would really like a light switch that I could look at and then the light would go on. Like my hands are often full (laughs) and I want the light on. If I could look in the direction of the light switch, maybe think light go on and then it would. I'd be very happy with that.
1: I think that's pretty doable actually. I mean, you'd have to either be wearing an EEG all the time or get one of these implants, but yeah, I mean, your your dreams could come true. I don't really see any reason why that wouldn't work. But let's return to the idea of just say taking your state, right? I think we we referenced earlier that consumer device that helps you get into a meditative state, right? Helps you get into certain types of brainwaves, mm-hmm. alpha waves, right? So, commonly this is called biofeedback because it's a loop. So, the computer will report to you, say, what state you're in, right? And then you can respond to that. And uh, this can be used to treat various conditions or just to give people a better understanding of how their brain works. But, say, like a classic example where you might use this to treat somebody would be, let's say, for ADHD. I, I think I mentioned earlier that one of the types of brain waves, beta waves, is associated with focus and attention, right? So let's say you wanted to train someone to be in a more focused state and to be able to control when they were in a more focused state. So then if the computer, which can use almost any kind of visualization method, constantly reports to that person what state they're in, so for example, maybe there's a car on the screen, right? It's like a simple video game setup. And if they're in the state that they're supposed to be in, the focused, attentive state or meditative state or whatever it is they're striving for, then the car drives forward. And that provides a positive feedback to that person, which encourages them to stay in that state, and try to remember what that was like. And maybe when they first start doing this, it's kind of random. The car moves and fits and starts, but eventually they can summon that state at will.
0: I did a thing like this. I think we talked about this in a very old podcast a long time ago, but at a science museum back on the East Coast I was visiting, I did a thing with my sister where you put a thing on your head, and you tried to roll a ball by relaxing, they said. And it's two people and If whoever relaxes more wins, if you relax your mind, the ball will roll away from you from them and goes into the other person's, uh, basket.
1: I wonder if that was Mindball.
0: It may have been Mindball. It, it it definitely featured both our minds and a ball and
1: almost nothing else. Ah, it was definitely Mindball. According to Wikipedia, Mindball is a two-person game controlled by players' brainwaves in which players compete to control balls' movement across a table by becoming more relaxed and focused.
0: Right. So I did that and I lost... I did not become, the closer the ball got to me, the more nervous I became. And then the further the ball went toward me, it was, uh, it was a game that landslided against me (laughs) pretty quickly.
1: Now, I don't know what, how the algorithm works. I don't either. But if they're measuring, say those alpha waves, then maybe you could have won the game by closing your eyes because when you apparently when you close your eyes, that inc- tends to increase the alpha waves. Also, you wouldn't have that negative feedback loop that you're having of getting anxious about losing. So so if you ever get a chance to play mind ball again... Yeah, rematch. There's your new strategy. That's a good strategy. I'll try that. But wait until they're focused on the ball before you close your eyes. They, they don't see that you're doing it, and they can't copy your, your strategy.
0: <laughs> and, then, and then you have to open your
1: eyes the second they lose. So they're like, gosh, how are you so good at this? But yeah, I mean... Well, you you brought up games, right? So, neurogaming is a term now.
0: Oh yeah, various ways of using feedback to improve or change games.
1: Sure. Well, and, and so yeah, they can measure those really broad emotional states, but also you know they can map it to something specific within the game. Like like I think there's a Star Wars game that's you know the more you concentrate, the stronger your force power gets. <laughs> um, and again, I think this is one of the main things that the 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 emotive is marketed towards. is is gamers you know it's it's sort of an alternate form of game controller I as far as I can tell it doesn't have any kind of wide adoption it is so it's got to be trained so thoroughly and it is so individualized that it's kind of like a do-it-yourself thing I think you can you know you set it up for a game but it's it's I don't think there's any like killer app for this yet but uh, I mean the possibilities are there the thing is I watched someone training this thing online yeah what uh, was that like and again, I, you know, if you are just sitting around all day without the use of your limbs in one of these laboratories, I mean, you're just going to be like, screw it. Let's do this. This is probably, you know, the most fun, rewarding thing you could possibly do is like help advance the technology and go through all this training. But if you're just like a well able-bodied person that wants to play a game, I mean, you got to train these things. And like the first thing it asks you to do, from what I could tell, is think of nothing, which is hilarious. Huh? So you have to calibrate it to nothing. It's like learning Kung Fu. Right. I mean, this is why (laughs) I think like this, I can't see this catching on for everybody because, you know, a certain kind of person's going to be able to just roll with that. And a lot of people won't. (laughs) I mean.
0: Yeah. That's why so many kids are outside the monastery steps and never get invited in for tea with the master.
1: (laughs) Now, I think, you know, it's also hard to think of abstract concepts like push or go or pull or up, right? But I think that the way you solve that is by having a mental visualization. And then the program that comes with that device can also show you a visualization of that at the same time to kind of reinforce it, right? So you see like a little floating cube and you see it drifting back in space while you think of push. And then later you picture that cube even when it's not there, right? You have that same sort of visual reference point. Right. And that, that maybe helps you sort of control your thoughts. Then it's just putting in the time, right? So yep. again, it sounds like a cool thing. And honestly, I want to try it. The more I was, I was looking at it just because it, It looks like a fun, nerdy thing to mess around with, but it I don't know. It doesn't doesn't seem like ready for for prime time.
0: (laughs) No, I agree with that. It definitely seems like a hobbyist and researcher space. But, you know, that's the space that things kind of queue up in right before they go mainstream. Look at VR, which has been stuck in that space for some time and looks like really poised to, to break out. So it could come quickly if, you know, if somebody figures out... Either better signal processing or a better way to get sensor data that's non-invasive.
1: Right. Well, and I think you mentioned virtual reality, but this is sort of a natural pairing for sure. virtual reality.
0: That's what I was thinking is you could build it into an Oculus Rift, something like the epoch.
1: Right. You're already putting something on your head. You're already sitting in one place. You're already
0: calibrating it to some extent, although not quite as intensely as with this. But you do have to calibrate you know, the lenses and I think the, the consumer version of the Oculus is going to have a like leap motion style infrared array like in the Oculus and then you have to have a receiver somewhere else that tells it where your head is, basically, where your head's at.
1: Well, and the other thing is it could learn on the fly. Like, let's say you use your Oculus Rift and it's passively monitoring your brain state. Every time you walk forward in the game, and at that point, you're still just using a video game controller to do the walk forward. Right. Uh, You're just literally holding up. Uh, And then after a month of monitoring you, it might get really, really good and just say, all right, you don't need the controller anymore. Just think about moving forward. And it's basically got you figured out at that point. So uh, that might be a way you could ease people into this. Yeah, that sounds good. That still might be like a little bit of a jarring. Like I still feel like if if I were trying to make that switch, I'd still be compulsively moving my thumb in the air.
0: No, I mean, really, this isn't going to be people really get excited about until it's something that uh, you can just sort of put on and it knows enough about human brains in general that it just starts working. And of course, it'll always get better as you train it but it's going to have to be a bit more plug and play probably than, than what we can do now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that may just be impossible with this type of sensing technology. Um, so, so other interesting uses of this thing. Yeah. Forensics. So say for lie detection, I mean, as long as you're sensing emotional states and in some cases people's intent, perhaps this could be used in a context to determine whether someone was telling the truth or something. There's also something called brain fingerprinting. This is the idea that brains respond differently to things that they're familiar with or have some special significance to them than say things that are new or of low significance. So if you were showing people a photo, right, and saying, do you know this person? Ah, yes. Okay. This is a classic detective setup. We're, we're back in movie land, right? Yep. You've, we've all seen this scene. Have you seen this girl? Do you right. recognize this girl? Never right. seen that girl before in my life. They say, but, but their brain fingerprint says otherwise. Uh, perhaps. There's these things called P300 signals that are actually used in a lot of these different types of interfaces that apparently is a signal that you can recognize roughly 300 milliseconds after someone either sees something they're sort of on the lookout for, like something say the researcher has told them to look for, like to pick out a certain color or letter Mm -hmm. or something that they're expecting to see and there's a certain spike that happens and that's called the P300 signal. So again, there's some speculation that you could use that in this brain fingerprinting technology. So, you know, I mean, this is the kind of thing, and now we're talking about the legal system. So, you know, that moves so much slower than technology that probably our lie detection will be a thousand times better than even what I'm talking about before it's ever even remotely admissible in court. But it's fun to think about. Oh,
0: yeah, well, maybe not admissible in court, but then again, the police seem to uh, adopt technologies and use them willy-nilly on citizens until they're told they can't. So, uh, <laughs> I don't know. This is true. I, I can see this stuff getting used. Maybe not openly admitted in court, but um, that's really interesting and, and gets into kind of some creepy you know, privacy-type issues. But, you know, in the case of... Um, someone's committed a terrible crime and you're trying to catch them, you could see uh,
1: justifying the use of technology like that. A couple other quick things that you could use this for, uh, health monitoring, particularly sleep, right? I mean, again, one of the things that's fairly easy to pick up, you know, is, you know, whether someone's sleeping or not and what kind of relaxation or state of sleep or type of sleep they're in. These are phenomena that, you know, cover the whole brain. So these are the kinds of things that you can actually measure with an EEG, So if you wanted to uh, monitor your sleep, see what needs to change, see how it's being affected by different drugs or so on. I mean, this is another great use of the technology, actually. Another one is just making art with it, right? I mean, you can drive any image or, or music, right, with these variables that you're generating out of your brain. So certainly you could create a unique electronic instrument and people have done stuff like this that is controllable by your brain and by whatever state you're in. I, I don't know you know, what all the possibilities of that are, but and I, I imagine they'll be fringe, but I mean, this is a, another immediate use I could see for that emotive thing, right? Would just be to create some pretty unusual art projects. Also on the list of things here is neuromarketing, which is a wonderful term that I'm sure sends chills down some people's spines, but... <laughs>
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, just uh, even on the Epic thing, when they mentioned, you know, focus groups or market research or something, I was like, oh, (laughs) but slapping these things on people to, you know, find out how they really feel about your products or whatever. just creeps me out.
1: Although I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe that'll lead to better products. Yeah,
0: but probably it'll just show people better ways that they can fool folks into buying things that they either... Don't want or don't need.
1: <laughs> well, I mean that's certainly the dark side. I mean, you know, marketing really is just basically another word for uh, for propaganda, mind control, mind control. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's 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 tolerable only because it doesn't work that well. But if this sort of technology makes it work a lot better, then uh, you know, like we talked about in our uh, future of advertising. Episode, you get into this like sort of casino world where uh, people are just addicted to the feelings that they're getting from the products that are being sold to them. But, uh, you know, it's totally divorced from the value of the products themselves.
1: So that's just like a, a brief tour of like some of the things that you could do with this stuff. Uh, but let's take this a little further and talk about whether or not we could imagine a world where people would go for these more invasive surgeries voluntarily. You know, people that are otherwise healthy, and what it would take to do that, right? Like, what would you have to get out of it in terms of benefit to make it worthwhile to get brain surgery? It seems like you'd have to have a pretty compelling argument.
0: Yeah, I mean, chopping into my skull—that's a very tall order. It's where I keep the me. I don't really want anybody screwing around in there. For me, I—I I, I can't really think of a level of benefit that would make sense where I would get elective brain surgery. Uh of course, I do think the future includes the potential that we might be able to do the more internal uh sensing without chopping open the head, like through the use of nanobots that can break the blood brain barrier, for example.
1: Well, cross cross the blood brain barrier. You hopefully don't want them uh breaking. Right, through right, right. Well, I don't want them to tear a hole. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, things like that,
0: uh, may make it so that you could get the benefits without trepanning yourself and inserting a chip. But, you know, I guess what if you were like uh, in in war? Maybe uh, you would be willing to uh, get that done so that you had, you know, unbreakable uh, encrypted, you know, communications, basically, even if you were captured, let's say.
1: Right. I mean, uh, in the military is a sort of high pressure situation where you could imagine maybe uh, certain soldiers, say, getting these elective surgeries and, you know, being persuaded to either by duty or loyalty or uh, a whole ton of money that they'd be compensated.
0: (laughs) Right. But then inevitably they'll go rogue and some people in an office will yell at each other about what they're doing. Right. I feel like this is another, this is, we're just backing into another movie setup, right? The super soldier with the chip in his brain. That's a thing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that is a thing, but it probably wouldn't play out anything like that movie, right? I no, mean- he'd just get, like, screwed on his
0: veterans' benefits, just like uh, just like happens to real soldiers.
1: Right, 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 yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, that's possible. I could see that. I mean, honestly, uh, for me, when I think about the military, I think the military's future is a future of almost entirely automated uh, machines. So sticking a chip in a special forces commando's brain maybe makes sense in a certain kind of high sensitivity situation, but the majority of, uh, regular enlisted men are just going to get automated away by drones, I think. And, and it wouldn't make sense for them. So maybe not them so much, uh, maybe in a small amount, who else might
1: want, uh, Well, I think anyone who had a lot to gain from it economically, it depends, I guess, what the chip is enabling you to do. I mean, if it's giving you the use of, say, extra limbs or, you know, able to control a special type of vehicle uh, that you couldn't normally control. I don't know. I guess, you know, I I mentioned the military, but like astronauts are another type of people that are in sort of high intensity situations and might benefit from some extra abilities and are already risking a great deal in their profession anyways. Sure.
0: And there's just not very many of them. Uh, So you can imagine them also being a a driver of innovation, but also a small small market.
1: (laughs) Well, and there's technologies that we didn't talk about this episode that we can get into later, you know, that can do things like you know, possibly enhance memory and things. And, you know, when it starts to become actual augmentations that might, you know, result in you earning hundreds of thousands of dollars more a year, then suddenly that risk might make more sense. And that's, I think, where we get into ethical issues if it were to turn out that way, uh, because then, you know, people are sort of being driven toward this dangerous surgery for profit incentives, or or just to try to compete in a in a worst case scenario. I mean, I I, I don't suspect that that's how it will work out. But I mean,
0: no, inter- I don't think so either. I feel like you know most of the benefits of brain computer interface are coming from the computer, not from the fact that your brain is tethered to it a little bit more tightly than uh, than it was when you were using a screen and a keyboard. Not that I can't see uses for it, but just that it seems like. If you want to avoid the surgery and you want those the benefits of the technology that's around you, I, I think you're going to be able to f- to make that work through less invasive sensors and Maybe alternative strategies, like things that use cameras or such to, uh, you know, infer your mental state from physical phenomenon, rather than necessarily reading the electrical, you know, content of your brain.
1: I, I agree, and especially for the things that we're talking about in this episode. I think if in a later episode uh, we talk about neuroprostheses, uh, we might have to have this conversation again. Uh, right.
0: Well, it, it it would it does change when you start getting into things that can basically add new capabilities, bionic man style to the human body.
1: But as long as it's just kind of either passively monitoring your brain and reporting to you, or it's just sort of triggering off of your active thoughts, I feel like you hit the same wall that we talked about uh, in other episodes, which is that you have finite attention. And so, I mean, even if you have 15 robotic arms that you can control. I don't know if that makes you, you know, 15 times more effective.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's interesting. It seems like the bottleneck here is definitely attention. You can only really think of a few things at once. Especially if the computer's trying to figure out what you're thinking, you probably can only think of one thing at once.
1: Well, now let's let's take the other angle on this and say you don't have to get the invasive surgery, right? You just have to use the much less invasive EEG technology. Let's say, I don't know, maybe you have to wear a hat, but it can be a reasonably fashionable hat. So you don't have to look like a weirdo either. Uh, What would you actually want to control with your brain as opposed to using a traditional interface? Where is thought control actually desirable given that we have two arms and two working legs?
0: Right, well, obviously anything that you normally do with your hands full. Sure, That's a temporary situation, but functionally, it's not that different from people who don't have the use of their hands.
1: But that's where we also normally would use, like, say, say voice, right? Right. So let's say you come in the door and your hands are full of stuff and you want to turn the light on, like we were just talking about. You could think that, or you could honestly just say... Light, or it could honestly just be in that case, I guess, be smart well, enough to know that you're coming home. I mean, but. yeah,
0: I kind of don't want a house in which every time I say light, something about the lighting changes that actually sounds like a disaster. But, um,
1: you'd have to be more specific, there, but to yeah, be- I
0: mean, you know, if you say okay, house, or whatever the uh, the passphrase is, and then you say turn the lights on and it does it, maybe that's better.
1: But thought fails would be even funnier than voice activation fails, right? Because we were talking about, you know, right, how, how you're listening to a, a podcast and the, someone on the podcast says, okay, and then it triggers your phone to wake up because of the, okay, right. Google keyword. <laughs> I mean, you know, you just be thinking about lights because uh, who knows why someone was talking about lights on the TV show you're watching or, I mean, this is a bad example. It's not a very creative one because- Well, you, you don't definitely these,
0: don't want a thought controlled world in which your subconscious- thoughts like leak out into the world a lot through the, that would be really, I mean, you can think of many humorous examples of this, but it seems like, you know, everybody keeps a certain fraction of their thoughts private for good reason. And if those thoughts were being posted to a stream or something that would, you know, make many people uncomfortable.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, and the thing is that we have thoughts all the time, but I mean, most people are able to, you know, restrain, say like, just because they have a thought like, like, oh my gosh, this person's being so annoying, I want to slap them. They can restrain themselves from slapping them because there's, you know, there's a lot of moments during which you can stop yourself. I mean, you have to have the thought and then it's actually fairly slow to sort of send the the message to your hand and then like, you know, actually follow through with that slap. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of opportunities to bail on that even after it crosses your mind. But these these interfaces can be a lot faster than that, right? In fact, actually, that's one of the uses of them that I forgot to talk about, is they have demonstrations of uh, mind-control cars that can brake faster than a person can brake, right? And it's triggering off the person knowing they want to brake, (laughs) but but the brain-computer interface can actually push the brake faster than the person can tell their foot to do it. Sure, of course, because you you flinch before you act a lot of times. Well, we're really not that fast, right? Right, I mean, like, so... I I think that slowness kind of keeps us from just, you know, you know, flailing about doing every crazy impulse we have the second it crosses our mind. But like, that's not necessarily built into these soon systems. soon our
0: cars will have the ability to <laughs> well,
1: I mean, impulsively the, respond to our... Can you imagine the car will just... I <laughs> mean, the failure mode with that technology is a complete disaster. So, I mean, I, I don't see that going anywhere, but it's an interesting demonstration. No,
0: probably that's not the, not the way it actually works out. But that is, a far, that is a very funny idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think these systems would just have to be designed to be robust. I mean... Even in the lab, right, when they have these robotic arms, I mean, these robotic arms have fail-safes built in where, you know, the second they hit an object, they're not expecting, they just stop, right? Because you just, you can't just be running an experiment in a lab with with a big old bionic arm that's like being controlled by somebody's brain and like, you know, give it full, you know, freedom to just respond, Right. So I mean, yeah, you you need a lot of robust controls, and you might. I mean, the trick I think is getting them responsive, and then after you got them responsive, you almost, it's almost like you have to then slow them down so that they they don't respond too readily to things. Um, but anyways, let's let's uh, let's wrap this up. So uh, this has been a, perhaps a more meandering episode than usual. But uh, this really is an interesting topic. And there's there's actually so much more to talk about. So we, we may revisit this. In fact, I'm sure we will. Right. We were thinking
0: we might have maybe enough for two more episodes about this concept of brain-computer interfaces. But some of the places that we, that we excluded this time. Okay. So I'm sure you're sick of us talking about it. But we have a Kickstarter coming up soon. It's going to launch August 31st for our... Sci fi graphic novel, which is called Let Go. It's about technological unemployment and accelerating change. It's seen through the eyes of a family that's trying to live their lives and cope with uh, a world that's just uh, running faster and faster all around them. Uh, you can check out information and artwork uh, from that at letgocomic.com, and we will remind you when the Kickstarter goes live.
1: Also, just want to remind you that we have an iOS app. Uh, called review the future that you can find inside the app store we also have a twitter handle that's rtf underscore podcast that's a great way to get in touch with us and send us episode ideas or just feedback of all kinds the email feedback at review the future.com works just as well and uh, remember to rate us on itunes stitcher however you listen if it has a rating system we appreciate it, it helps us out and as always thanks for listening we'll see you soon thanks for listening
0: To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit ReviewTheFuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at ReviewTheFuture.com. Thanks for listening.